Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. Today on the show, we have our first ever returning guest of the Two Roads Podcast, and that person is Ogie Hollywood. Ogie Frisk came on the pod way back on episode three, when we were just starting off at the start of this year, and he's actually still one of the most played episodes ever of the podcast. So during our first episode together, Ogie told his story from kind of pretty much start to where he is now. So he talked really openly about his childhood, some of the challenges that he had growing up, his journey through school and uni and how he landed a job at Google. He talked about what it's actually like to work at Google, but also why he left and moved to Bali and started his own business out there. I think though what really struck a chord with people and why people enjoy that episode was because he talked so openly about his own experiences throughout this journey, the things he struggled with and what he's done to try and move past those struggles. And I'd really recommend going back and giving that episode a listen if you haven't already. And it'll also give you a bit more context and a story for some of the things that we talk about today. So now Ogi still lives in Bali and he runs two businesses. So one is a marketing agency and the second is a property development business. And last year himself and a friend bought land in Bali and they started building these villas. And I wanted to hear about what that experience has been like for them. And so that's where I start the conversation today. So on this episode, we cover a pretty wide range of topics, but we start off talking about what his experience has been like developing real estate in Bali and if he's found it enjoyable. Then we move on and we talk about some other things, including the role of alcohol in our lives and specifically what we can do if we want to cut down on alcohol, but we still want to have fun, be social, meet new people, build connection with our friends, all that good stuff. And that's a journey that I think both myself and Ogie have been on over the last few years, which is not easy. We talk about how the people that we hang out with influence our behaviors and what we want in life. And if there's anything we can do about that, how we should kind of think about the impact that that has on us. We talk about the reality of going through highs and lows in your life and the fact that everyone feels unmotivated at times and maybe some of the things that we can do about that if we are feeling unmotivated. It was great timing for me. I had had a really, I had had a day where I was feeling very unmotivated before I talked to Ogie and I was kind of beating myself up over that. And it was really nice for us to have a conversation where he says, you know, pretty much everybody has these moments. Uh, he certainly does. And we talk a little bit about maybe some of the tactics you can do to get out of those when you feel them. Finally, Ogie flips the script and he asks me some questions. And so we talk in depth about some of the things you should consider before joining an early stage startup. So this is more in the careers side of the conversation. I've spent the last five years working at startups. I know a lot of people are in big companies and thinking about moving out of them and going into something smaller. And so we talk about the things that you should be considering specifically what you can expect financially. And I share a lot about my experiences with this specifically from working at two startups over the last few years, but then also some of the other considerations, what you can do to make sure that you're finding a good startup versus a shitty one. There's genuinely something for everybody in this episode. Ogie is a really thoughtful guy. He's very articulate as well, and he's incredibly open about his own struggles. And I have so much respect for him because of that. As always, you can get more content about how to build a life that you love, how to find a job that you get meaning and purpose in on our socials. So you can go and on Instagram, get us at two roads pod. That's T W O roads pod. And then on LinkedIn, just get my personal account, which is Steve Duke. Make it happen.
But for now, I hope you enjoy my chat with LD Hollywood. Let's get into it. Shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us. Now we here, alright? I think it's about maybe five or six months since we caught up last and did the last episode, which I think was episode three of this podcast. But um, I'm really keen to hear what's been going on over the last five, six months. So, yeah, what have you been up to? Yeah, well, look, firstly, cheers for having me back on, Stephen. It's good to good to catch up. Um, it's not a not a very long time, but lots has probably happened in a, in a relatively short space of time with so many different projects and bits and pieces happening. Um, main things, to be honest, has been the, trying to get the first few villas finished. It's been a pretty chaotic few months getting them to the, the final completion and handover, and we finally did the handover last Sunday. Um, so that was, yeah, it's a very proud moment, to be honest, and a, and a kind of big milestone to get the first two finished and hand it over and, and fully kind of off our yeah off our plate to some extent um but it was tedious at times to be honest uh there's a lot of a lot of back and forth in the contractor a lot of additions a lot of changes a lot of um there's a lot of decisions to make to be honest i think that was the biggest thing that i, I kind of realized is you're always on and there's always decisions to make and it's just a lot of back and forth communicating between stakeholders interior designers looking for when the furniture's all going to arrive things are delayed or things get broken in transit and then it's, you know dealing with the contractor and looking at when different bits and pieces are going to be done. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a, been a busy few months. Um, I'm actually heading back to Europe for the first time in just over two years in August. So looking forward to taking a bit of a break, uh, get to see family, catch up with people at home. And um, yeah, but otherwise, man, things are good. I think it's been a, yeah, lots going on. Uh, agency still ticking over in the background. I probably haven't given as much attention as I would have liked over the last three or four months in particular. Just kind of been quite busy with other things on. Um and yeah, just I guess hard to balance everything in some in some sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, when you look back at what what is it, maybe a year or long a year and a half, maybe since you started building the villas, what is it? Yeah, just over a year. We actually started construction in September, so it was about nine, ten months of actual build time. But obviously, three or four months planning before that, when we kind of bought the land initially, uh, started getting the initial drawings done, then kind of vetting contractors, signing a contractor to work with. So. Yeah, the goods of a year, which, you know, in the scheme of things is, is obviously a very short space of time. And I think whenever you're in the midst of it, it feels like it's going on forever and it's been a very long time in the process. Um, but yeah, in, in reality, it's a very short space of time. And yeah, yeah it's, it's been a whirlwind, but it's, it's yeah definitely been a good use of my time over the last year. Yeah, like Nat, you enjoyed it? You're happy you did it or or no? <laughs> yeah, big time, big time. No, it's, it's, okay. it's probably one of the biggest things for me in that sense of just like, taking on a large risk that scared the shit out of me. And I was like, am I really going to do this? And then to just sink my teeth into it and say, you know what, no going back. I think there was a real pivotal moment, like for myself and Kenny, when we purchased the land, it was like, well, we got to do it now. You know, there's no going back. <laughs> yeah. and I think that was uh, very scary, but also it's like, I think it's a big thing for me in general that I've realized it's like taking one big scary step in whatever direction it might be. Um, the rest of the road kind of seems to unfold as you, as you start traveling down it. But until you take that first first turn, as, as it might be, um, you don't really know where you're going to go. And it's like you can work pretty much anything out once you're in the process. And I think realizing that is a very powerful thing because, you know, no one knows anything until they do it. Right. Um, but as you start and start kind of pushing yourself into different avenues, all of a sudden you realize you're capable of learning probably a lot more than you might give yourself credit for. Yeah, it's a good point. There's definitely an element of like burning the boats there as well, right, where it's like you've taken out the option not to not to do it so you have to figure it out you don't really have a choice you've bought the land you have to go and build something on it otherwise you're going to have 
a plot that you spent money on. You're never going to get that back. So, yeah. And what, is it, is it, to tell me, like, fill me in, because, like, I've been following on, like, Instagram, right, and, like, seeing the villas and the places and everything else. But what's this what's the story in terms of like you buy this land, you build it. And then what, do you sell all the villas? Did you hang on to one of them or is it, are they just gone like off your books? That's it. Somebody bought them. You got the money. See you later. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And it's funny. I only kind of realized that myself a few months ago that no one really knew what the hell we were doing. Like a few people initially was like, Oh, you're building yourself a villa to live in. Like you've decided that you're going to settle in Bali for you know, the long term and you're building yourself a home. Other people assumed you're like, Oh, you're going to build it and you're going to Airbnb. Um, but the plan for us, was always to build and resell. So we, we, we got a plot of land for initially four units. And we kind of said to ourselves, we'll build two to start off with, so we don't kind of overstretch ourselves. And if that goes well, we'll build another two. And if that goes well, we'll kind of see where we stand after that process is over. And again, really just in that process of like, okay, once you start taking one step. So we started building in September. We didn't plan on selling any units until they were finished, which would have been this time of the year now. And about two months into the build process, we listed with an agent uh, for kind of off-plan sales. And we ended up finding a buyer in the first two weeks for one of the units, which was a massive shock to us, to be honest. We were like, yeah, we didn't think anyone would come until they were very close to being finished. And it was a combination, I think, of, of you know the buyer seeing our backgrounds. And even though we hadn't worked in property development before, they could kind of see it like, okay, these are two trustworthy people. You know, they have good career experience behind them. And at the end of the day, they're pretty much project managing and they could also see that we had a good interior designer, that we had a good contractor who had a lot of experience in building other projects in Bali. And I think that gave us a lot of credibility, even though we personally didn't have much experience in the space. And yeah, kind of fast forward then, I think we we ended up selling the second unit um, a couple of months later. I think it was maybe November, December time when we, when we signed the second uh, unit over to, to a buyer. And that essentially put us in a position where we could then fund the next two buildings. So we kind of said, regardless of whether we have buyers for those now, because we've sold the first two we can continue on and finish this first project and, and do the four units. We started building the second two in February um, and they'll be finished this November, November, December. And I guess, again, as the kind of journey went along, things start to unfold and things start to kind of put themselves together as you move in, in the right direction, which was as we got to completion of the first two units, we're about a month before finishing, we ended up getting a lot of interest. So we didn't, people who were like, oh, these look beautiful, like they're almost finished. Are they available to sale or to sell? Um, and we were like, well, actually, unfortunately, these ones are already sold. But we have two more units that are going to be finished in November. Um, and we very fortunately got an investor who took the two final units. So he came in and seen them. was like, look, I really want these units. Um, can I take the next two pretty much? So that, that, that kind of came in in probably March, March, April time, I think it was, when we sold the final two. Um, and that really just validated. So you've sold like, four okay, look, we, we have a, Yeah, so we sold, sold four. Uh, we've actually sold more. We've, we've sold another two since then again. So we've sold six uh, to date. Um, and that's for the next project again. So we've pretty much sold out the first four. We have another project which is starting in the next month that will be completed next June. And we have the first two units on that project already sold before we start construction. So yeah, it's moving in a very good direction, to be honest. And it's really surprised me in, in terms of the trajectory and, and the demand and, and the interest in, in what we're doing. It's... It's a lot of cash flow management, to be honest. Like this, you know, because obviously someone doesn't pay 100% upfront. So someone comes in and they put a down payment and then they pay, you know, generally 30% upfront to sign the papers and agree the terms of the, of the contract. And then they pay over the process of the building plan. So after you get to 30% completion, they'll pay another installment. After 50%, they'll pay another installment, 70, et cetera. Um, so we consistently have to manage, you know, our cash flow that's going out in terms of paying for the contractor, paying for the land, 
uh, paying for the interior designer and furniture, while then also managing and making sure that the incoming payments from the investor side are all coming in on time to, to then obviously cash flow the bills going forward. Um, but yeah, it's, go, it's going well. It's it's Yeah, it's been a lot more than I expected in terms of workload in two capacities, like both on the the actual business side, dealing with those kind of things in terms of the financials and the cash flow management and accounting and finances, but then also hands-on on the ground in terms of product managing. And, you know, I was on site three, four days a week, checking in, meeting with contractor, meeting with our supervisor. Um, and you learn an awful lot. Like you learn an awful lot about the different types of waterproofing that you put under the floors, the different, you know, types of showers and tap fixtures that you can use, the different types of surfaces you can use for countertops, different floor tile types and costs and whatever else. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, but again, it's, it's an enjoyable process, right? Because when I started doing this, like I have family in construction, I have a bit of an understanding of, of some of these elements. Um, but it's an absolute minefield. You know what I mean? Like we're, the minute we're looking at changing like the kitchen sort of countertop uh, materials and you've got 40 different types of countertops you can use. And then it's like, you know, different quality, different specs, different prices. Um, and you realize that each one of those things is a, is a decision that you have to then make, um, which, yeah, it's good, man. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's definitely been a big stretch for me in terms of that, like, something that I probably didn't think I could do, and all of a sudden you're doing it, and it's like, okay, it's actually happening. I still have some days where I'm like, holy shit, have I taken on too much here, and is it all going to fall apart? Um, but thankfully, we're moving in the right direction, and things are in a pretty good spot. Yeah. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, a lot of the work you would have done previously, whether it's at Google or, you know, running your agency, it's all digital, right? And it's all like very online world and sitting on, you know, Google Meets and and that kind of thing. Whereas like this is a very, very real world type of job where you're like actually on site, like as you said, three or four days a week looking at table counters or tabletops. Like what do you, um, do you like that sort of thing? Like did you find that enjoyable to be drawn a bit more into like a real world kind of job, like in a physical world type experiences? Yeah, it, it's been a big part of it, to be honest. Like, I think for, so, uh, the, with the property business, myself and Kenny, obviously, you, you know well enough, and we're both 50-50 in the business, and we both very similar careers previously, where it's all digital, it's all kind of online-based. And whenever we both got into the space, that was a big part of, like, we'd love to do something physical. We both had an interest in real estate, an interest in property. We've stayed in a lot of villas over the couple of years that we've been kind of traveling around and living remotely. And I think I didn't, expect to enjoy it as much as I did in that sense. Like whenever you see the villas finished, it's like, holy shit, we made that from nothing. Like it literally was a field, yeah. you know, nine, 10 months ago. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, we've actually made that. Obviously we haven't physically made it. I didn't lay the bricks or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but based on the decisions that we made and the choices that we've, we, we've, uh, yeah, we've, we've made, we've now created something physical and tangible. Um, there's this, uh, the one challenging part that can be a bit sad to be honest is that, you finish this beautiful villa and then you just hand over the keys and it's like, yeah, here's your, here's your beautiful new villa. And, uh, you did you get to stay in it even for like a night? Did you get a night yeah, or two at least night. that you could like one, say? One, one night. Did you? We were planning, yeah, we were planning to do like a two or three week test period just to make sure everything's working fully. And, um, I think Keanu did a day or two and then he had loads of influencers booked in. So he had loads of like photo shoots planned and we had like content creators coming to get content for our own Instagram and also to promote it on their channels and kind of grow that social media channel side of things. Um, so I remember I got to have, I went for like one night just out. I was actually in Australia for a week visiting a few friends over there and I came back and I got to sustain it for one night before we pretty much had to 
yeah, get out to Fulham to do a few other little bits of work. And that night was like a sleepless night because I was there stressed about the few little things that still needed to be finished. Um, so hopefully next time I'll, I'll plan a little bit better and I'll actually get to enjoy it for maybe a week or two. Um, but yeah, it's that's that's part of the process, I think. And I'm, again, really leaning into that sense of like delayed gratification. And it's like, for both businesses at the minute, man, I don't take much money from it personally. Like the money in the agency sits in the agency bank accounts and I pay, you know, my, my employees and we make sure everything's in a good position. Um, and from the property, it's just like everything's just being reinvested. So it's like, you know, we finished that project, we purchased more land, we reinvested in that. We now have cash flow to fund the next project. So it's like, okay, everything's in a position where the businesses are profitable and the businesses are, are in a strong cash flow position. But like, you know, my life hasn't changed anything. You know what I mean? It's like, if anything, I probably have less than I ever had because everything's kind of sunk into, into those businesses. Yeah. Um, and just, just trying to really be okay with that. Like it, it's been a big thing for me in general, I think over the last few years, like learning to be a bit more frugal in my own spending behaviors and realizing it's like, I, you know, you don't need that much of these excessive things or luxuries that we kind of think are going to make us happier, you know, have more, more pleasure in life. It's like, even, you know, in terms of where I currently live myself, it's like a super basic two-bedroom house, you know, nothing fancy, don't even have a, you know, there's no swimming pool or no nothing. It's like, it's just a normal two-bedroom house, you know what I mean? Um, but that's very affordable. And therefore, it's like, okay, you know, I don't need to have some fancy whatever to live in. Um, I'm happy to kind of have just a basic place. I've got a nice comfy bed. I've got a, you know, good work from home set up here with a desk set up. And um, we don't really need much more than that. You know, at the end of the day, it's like how much additional happiness would it give me to have an extra 100 square meters of space to use or, you know, a big 15-inch TV on the wall or whatever it might be. It's like, it doesn't really change much to your day-to-day. And I think the more that I'm trying to lean into that, the more that I can yeah. prepare for a future where hopefully I'll have a bit more freedom. How how do you do that, though? Because I'm listening to you going, I 100% agree. We don't need these things. I know intellectually that like they don't make us happy. Um, but I'm not very good at acting on those things i'll get tempted and i'll end up like buying something stupid and then i'm like why like why did i do that like um <laughs> do you think do you think it's something that just kind of comes in, like naturally to you or is it something you have to work because i imagine like there's a lot of people around where you live especially in bali right who are living pretty extravagant lifestyles i'm sure it gets tempting to splash out on something yeah i would say it definitely doesn't come naturally to me like if anything, I've probably been more inclined to spend more than I had for a long, you know, a lot, a lot of my life. Like, even I remember the first year I worked at Google, I was still in my overdraft for about the first six months. Um, and it was like, you know, I'd paying a loan on a car. It wasn't even a nice car, but it was just a loan on, on a Golf. And um, I was spending very much to my means. Like, whatever I was making, it was like, okay, I got myself a nice, yeah, yeah, nothing super fancy, but a nice apartment in the city centre in a good location. Um going on a lot of holidays, you know, every other weekend it would be off to Spain, off to Amsterdam, off to somewhere in Europe. And um, I think when I, like a big part of it for me is like, if everyone that you're surrounded by is doing those things, you're naturally inclined to want to do them as well. So if everyone's mm-hmm. weekend is going to a nice restaurant where you drop 200 quid on a nice meal, or it's, you know, flying for a weekend away to go and stay in a beautiful, you know, uh, Airbnb or whatever it might be, you naturally want to be involved in the same activities that your friends are doing. And therefore you naturally get pulled into those kind of things. I think it's definitely helped being here because you can still have a quite good lifestyle for relatively affordably. So like restaurants are much more affordable here than Sydney, for example, if I go to Sydney for a week, 
like I just eat out like I eat here. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh shit, spend like $150 a day on food, you know, just having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Whereas here, that might cost you 20 or $30. Um, so I think that's that's definitely been a big part of it. It's like I can still go to nice restaurants here and I'll have a nice three course meal. I might spend 20, 30 euro um, on a nice meal. But yeah, I don't know. I'm going to challenge, like I even notice myself, like I, I often kind of ponder on the point of like, if I was to live in a place like Dubai, for example, how much would I get sucked into that like material mm-hmm. pursuit and that material like uh, kind of lifestyle? And I think so much of man depends on like what other people around you perceive as valuable in terms of status. Because if you're in a place where like your sense of status directly is very attributed towards the things that you have in terms of the, the, the location that you live in, the car that you drive, uh, the restaurants that you frequent, the nightclubs that you go out to at the weekend, naturally enough, like if you don't engage in any of those activities, you actually become low status within that environment. That's a very hard thing for anyone to sit within because all of a sudden you're seen lesser in the dating market. Maybe certain people don't want to hang around with you as much because you don't you know, want to pay the same prices for certain things. Um, and that can be a very conflicting thing to deal with internally because you know, we all know that internally as humans, we're all equal in terms of value. There is no such thing as like, oh, that person is worth more than me because they drive a nicer car. But in reality, in society, we do structure things into certain like social hierarchies and status uh, pursuits. And therefore, I think very often it comes down to people's friendship group and then their dating market. And it's like, if men often want to attract a high status woman, they think that they need to have all of these luxuries in order to impress a woman, to show them how much they're doing, how well they're doing in life. And that can, that can be go one of both ways. Like there's lots of very successful men who have nice homes and, you know, nice cars and nice lifestyles. There's also lots of very average earning men who also flash nice watches, nice cars and live nice lifestyles, but all of everything that they own is on finance. It's like do these women actually know the difference or are they often just pursuing what they think is a high status man? And very often it's someone who's probably financially quite constrained because they're so in credit to the majority of those things that they want to perceive that they, they, they can afford to have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. Like, um, so I'm very interested in how the environments that we decide to put ourselves in shape, like what we want and then ultimately our behaviors. Um, and what I keep coming back to is like, it's a really big choice. Like the, the, the big choices that matter, I think, are like where we live and who we decide to hang around with because they're going to influence like so many more of our behaviors, right? Like I live in Bondi, like what the Bondi society values for better or for worse is is certainly a lot around health and fitness, which I think is good to a point. But then there's a lot, there's also a lot around like aesthetics and kind of, um, and there is a, like an element of like a, just like basic, like social status as well, right? Like, do you work in finance and, you know, work in the city and all that kind of thing as well. So I don't know, like, how do you find that there? Like, how, where, where do you feel like you fit into that society in terms of your own group of friends? Do you feel like you're changing your own behaviors to fit into certain situations? Or like, how, how do you kind of navigate those social situations within Bondi? It's a good question. I think in general that my friend group is not, one is one like my close friend group is one that I'm very comfortable in so I don't feel like I have to change my you know behaviors in any way to to kind of feel like I fit in with them like which is which is good although what I would say is I've probably foregone certain like more casual like friend groups or relationships because I'm like actually I don't want to 
I don't want to behave in the way that I would need to, to be part of that group. Right. So I think it's like, that's tough, right? Because it's then you're kind of saying, actually, I'm going to turn away these relationships, um, which is a little bit more isolating, but you do it because you say, well, I don't want to do the things that I have to do to kind of be part of that group, you know? Um, and that, but then I think on the flip side of it, from a, from a health perspective, I love living in Bondi because it's just like, it's, you walk down the street and as long as you are able to look at it in a healthy way, like you walk down the street and you see healthy people, you see people working out, you see people are fit and you kind of go, fuck, like I better go and do the same thing. Right now it's, you obviously want to make sure that doesn't go too far into a point where you're putting a huge amount of pressure and strain on yourselves to, you know, eat a certain way or look a certain way. Like that's not healthy, but like if you're able to do it in a good way, so it influences, and, and that's what I find. I find it influences my behaviors in largely in a good way, but, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think it really helps, though, if you've got enough of a sense of your own identity that you're able to say, actually, that group, that behavior, not for me, even though it's around me, I don't want to engage with it, um, which I think, thankfully, I have at this point, but I wouldn't have always had it. I think if I'd moved here a lot younger, when I did move here a lot younger, I would have been more drawn into those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head there, isn't it? Because it's so much about how you react to it. Like if you're secure enough in yourself to know the way that you want to live, the way that you want to behave, what you value and what you find important, and you don't necessarily get pulled into those dynamics that don't really serve you to an extent. Um, and once you have a close enough group of friends around you who are also from a similar walk of life and have similar values in terms of what they find important, it's like ideally then you kind of just don't really have to play those games, even though they are evidently around you and in that society is it's not a game that you have to play yeah yeah I, I completely agree um we were chatting a little bit before we started recording about like some of the challenges of when you're running your own business so you run what essentially two businesses right so you've got the agency and you've got then what you're doing from like a real estate perspective and we were talking about like some of the some of the hard things about that and I'm sure a lot of people look from the outside in and it seems very glamorous. And, you know, I followed the, the, the Instagram page for the villa and it looks fantastic. And I'm sure a lot of people just see that and think it's wonderful, but there's a lot of challenges about running your own business. Like, um, yeah. Tell me a bit about like what's been going on maybe over the last few months and some of those challenges that people mightn't see from the outside. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, in general, man, everything is very glamorized online. And I think it's one of the most toxic parts of our society that we are consistently consumed by digital media that portrays a very positive outlook of pretty much everybody's life. Everyone has beautiful, happy, healthy families, relationships, home lives, successful careers, great lifestyles. Um, and the reality is, you know, everyone just shows a very small highlight reel of their reality. And I think everyone goes through ups and downs and challenges and Life is never very straightforward and I think, you know, I personally think it's a very important thing to speak about and, and, and be honest about because there's pros and cons of every element of life. And I think, you know, if we if we kind of ignore the fact that there's challenges and, and, and we kind of live in this in this uh, kind of false sense of reality where we're trying to show everyone else that everything is amazing all the time and we're all super happy, it's also very unfair to ourselves because we're living kind of an un, untrue sense of, of, of how our reality is. Um, for me, like the last... In honestly, the last two or three months has been a very challenging period. Like, I, I think as we were chatting before, it's like whenever you have your own business, the kind of there's no one else to pick up the slack if you're not in a good position and you're not performing at your very best. 
And there's also no one to push you or motivate you whenever you are not delivering your best work or you're not feeling as motivated as you might be. And like, there's been days over the last few months where I'll wake up and I'll snooze my alarm. And I'll stay in bed for an extra two hours and I'll wake up and I'll scroll Instagram for an hour while I'm still lying in bed. I might not get out of bed till half 10 or 11 o'clock. All of a sudden it's like that starts to ruminate on itself of like, all of a sudden you feel like a bit of a failure. You feel like you're not working hard enough. You feel like you're not putting in the graft that you need to. And then you're also, you know, if you're in that consuming other media of what other people are doing, you're seeing everyone else who's, you know, running these $100 million companies and this 23-year-old millionaires who are doing X, Y, and Z with dropshipping or whatever it might be. And you start to feel a bit like, oh, well, you know, what am I doing wrong here? I'm really not working hard enough or I'm not doing enough or I'm not in as good enough position that I would like to be. Um, and it becomes quite challenging. Like I noticed in myself, I really pulled back from LinkedIn, for example. I was doing a lot of content on LinkedIn. I was doing a lot of outreach, and it was actually very positive and proactive for, for the agency business. And probably like two, three months back, I went through like a pretty full-on stint of like doing it pretty much every day for a month or two. And then I just got to a stage where I was like, I have no energy left for it. And I feel like this for me is something that whenever I'm not personally in the best headspace, I find it very hard to follow through with some of the activities that I that are not very natural to me. Um and that being one, which is like putting yourself out there publicly, whether it's through LinkedIn, even for, for a professional capacity, or whether it's you know, putting yourself out there in a, in a more public-private capacity, um, it's very easy just to, to withdraw and pull yourself back. And um, there was something actually that really, really resonated. I listened to a podcast a few months back on the Diary of CEO, and there's a guy, um, Ramesh uh, Ramgathan, I don't know if pronounced that correct, um, but he was a comedian from the UK. And he had this quote, he was just saying, he was like, I have a prick living in my head that talks to me all the time. And I've never f listened to something that resonated so much, to be very honest, where it's like, that just sums up my existence for a large portion of my life, to be honest. And it's a very tough thing to come to terms with, um, where it's like you have a very strong internal negative voice that often tells you you're not good enough, you're not working hard enough, you know, I told you you weren't going to be able to achieve X, Y, Z. I told you you weren't good enough for X, Y, Z. Um, and it can be, again, it's like, even going back to his reference, he said, like, it's like, sometimes it's only a day or two away. And it's not, people often think about mental health and, and kind of going through these lower stints as it's either a crisis or it's everything's perfect. And very often people speak about it when they're on the far side of it and they're kind of, they've came through it and they've, you know, it's like, oh, I used to be depressed. I used to deal with these challenges a few years ago, but I found all the solutions and now I just meditate every day and do breath work and I'm amazing and my life is great. But realistically, it's very unlikely for most people who, who have these challenges. It's a consistent thing within our psyche. It's, it's something that's maybe there's genetic dispositions there and everyone's built different, right? I think something that, that's, that's really interesting is like if someone doesn't have that voice in their head, it's very hard for them to understand what it could be like to have that voice in their head because it just doesn't go through their mind. They don't have those extremely negative thoughts on a regular basis. And therefore it would almost seem like delusion to consider that someone would maybe think like that or have those internal uh, thought processes that, that, that would occur within their mind. Um, so yeah, and honestly, man, that, that's kind of been my last few months have been in a bit of a lower spell and it's like, you know, I, again, I wouldn't label it to say that I was depressed, but I definitely went through lower moods or depressive moods and they come and go. And, and, and that kind of negative voice is something that I've been dealing with for a number of years. And 
you know, I do have coping mechanisms and I've, I've, I've done a lot of research in this area. I've seen therapists numerous times in the past. I've done cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these things help. But again, it, it generally, it doesn't make it go away. Right? And, and, and what I kind of find is it really is the consistency of, of, of your like routines, of your energy levels, of, of what you're, you're doing. And like, you know, I find there's something that resonates again, which is like if doing the things that you said you would do, in order to make yourself feel enough, right? So for example, that might be, if you promise yourself that tomorrow morning you're gonna wake up at 7 a.m., but instead of waking up at 7 a.m., you hit the snooze button and you lie in bed for another hour and you kind of ruminate on, on not wanting to get up and face the day, you've just lost that day. Like you've just beaten yourself up in your own head and you've taken a loss for what could be a very simple thing. Whereas if you try and flip that on its head to be like, just keep your own promises to yourself, like. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And by doing that consistently over time, you start to build a sense of like, okay, I am the person that I think I am, or I am the person that I want to be. And that for me is a very powerful process. And although it's not, again, I I, 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 I fuck up on these things very regularly, and I don't do the things that I know I should be doing to keep myself in a good place. Um, but I always try and bring myself back to it as quickly as possible. And I think that's where the quicker you can learn to rebound, generally the more proactive and positive you can be for longer periods of time as opposed to allowing yourself to stay in these negative places and ruminate in them for too long because i don't think it's about trying to stop them from occurring because i don't think that's possible in my opinion but i think it's about learning to accept it when it's there but also realize how can i pull myself back out of this and for me like i, I personally find um i find ice baths really 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 powerful and i think it's just a sense of it allows me to fully center on that moment like there's nothing else that really can go through your mind when you're in a five degree ice bath, freezing your tits off, being like, "Okay, I'm present right now. Like I'm I'm here. I'm alive. I'm I'm, I'm you know ready to rock." Um, and that's something that like I've, I, my neighbor has one out in his place, and I often go in in the morning before I go to the gym and just do like three minutes in the ice bath. And that often is just like that. That three minutes can change my day quite substantially, to be honest. Where it gives me a sense of like I'm in control. Like I'm taking ownership and I'm taking control of this day. We're doing something that's quite small but quite challenging, um, and I think that for me in general, like exercise, is another big one for me. But even you know, one of the hardest things actually to accept of the last few months is like I haven't been drinking now for like the last four or five months at all, and over the last year or two, my alcohol consumption has, has reduced quite significantly from where it would have been in my early twenties. And I came to a point where it's like I haven't drank in four months, but somehow I'm still in a pretty low negative place. And therefore, like, I can't blame the sense of like the lows or the lows coming from being hungover or not kind of, you know, that, that, that kind of knock on hangover for a few days. And therefore, it's like, okay, these are still going to come regardless. So, yes, probably reducing alcohol is a very positive thing because it's a negative depressive substance to, to take, especially for people who are susceptible to having that negative voice in their head. Um, but also, it's not a silver bullet. It's not just like, okay, cut out that one thing and you're going to be, you know, happy and never have any low moods again. It's like, okay, that's one positive step. But it also bridges other challenges. Like I found um, a lot of my social life used to used to be surrounded by going for a few drinks. And whether that's going out and getting wasted or just going for a few glasses of wine with a dinner with friends, a large majority of our generation's social activities revolve around some form of alcohol consumption. Um, so, yeah, I've, yeah, that's been something that I've, I've definitely been having a few challenges with. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's yeah. a problem, but it's definitely a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot of questions I want to ask you off the back of that. 
Um, when you talk about like the ice baths and exercise, what I I actually haven't really done ice baths much. Um, but for me, like exercise, we're just doing something physical that makes me be present and takes my mind off something um, is amazing. Because, and I think like the, the, one of the challenges I have at the minute is like, you know, I'm working remotely most of the time. And so I'm in front of my laptop and I don't even have that many calls, right? So it's a lot of just like time and me on my own, like working on something, thinking about something. And the reality is that that creates a lot of space, like a lot of mental space for that voice to come into if it wants to, right? Uh, whereas like if you're sitting in an ice bath, as you said, absolutely frozen, there's not much room for that voice to come into. Um, and I find that is like, I find, for me, it's rugby, right? I'll go to rugby training for an hour and a half. If you were like, what did you think about it, rugby training? I was like, honestly, couldn't tell you. I don't know. I was like the ball, like literally just like <laughs> rugby. That was it. And I think that's very good for me. Um, one thing I'm interested in is like, you talk about the having that voice in your head, right? That says you're not good enough. And I think a lot of people will probably empathize with that. And there's, two ways that I've heard of kind of dealing with it. One is that you kind of is a very kind of self-compassion led approach, which he says, it's okay. Like, even if you're haven't achieved the things that you want to said, that you said you wanted to do, that's okay. Because like your self-worth is not tied to achieving certain like objectives, whether it be business or in the gym or whatever else it is. And the other end of it is that you say, well, actually what you need to do is build evidence that you are the person that you say that you are. And that's what you were talking about there. But then that comes with the challenge with that one is that, well, someday you're going to slip up and then that's going to open the door for that voice to come in and say, ah, I told you, I knew you'd slip up. Um, and it kind of opens that door for them. Right. So um, do, is that something you think about? Because I go, I go back and forth between those. I'm like, I want to build the evidence base and the habits, but I also know that like being compassionate towards myself is really important, but they seem like a little bit in conflict because the compassionate guy tells you, don't worry about doing that thing. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. And, um, you know, there's a bit of conflict, I think, in that approach. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, Stephen. Like I... For me personally, right, so I would say the best place to get to in the long term is a place where you have a lot of self-compassion, a lot of self-love, and you have a lot of acceptance for who you are and what you've achieved and where you're at in life. I think that's a very hard place to get to for most people. Um, I think a lot of people have places where they feel they have certain inferior, inferior uh, things that they want to work on um, and certain things they want to improve and progress. And... I think it can be a balance of both. Like you can, you can work on building self-compassion and being kinder to yourself and, you know, just generally improving how you speak to yourself while also still striving to be the person that you want to be. And like that quote that you kind of reference from Alex Ramosi is like, you, you don't become confident by shouting affirmations in the mirror, but by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are at work yourself out. That's a very powerful quote. But at the same time, you can say there's a part of that that could be toxic, which is just like this overemphasis on just like grind, work, mentality, like at all costs, do whatever you need to achieve. And then hoping that that achievement is going to make you feel good about yourself. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies around like high achieving individuals and that sense of like there's the three components, which is like a, what is it, impulse control, um, a severe sense of inferiority um, and a superiority complex. So it's like they people who achieve an awful lot generally don't feel good in themselves and they're generally working extremely hard 
to try and prove or fill that sense of insufficiency that they feel within themselves. And it's not a very good place to be driven from, like, because at the end of the day, no matter what you achieve, that achievement is never going to make you feel good enough. Right. And, and that's where it's like, it's very, it's very convoluted. Like it's very, and that's why I'm very intrigued by psychology and the human mind and like what does drive us, what does like, I've always just been intrigued by high performance, but I've always been very intrigued by people's and like human dynamics and how we interconnect and relate to others and, and, and how we push ourselves in life. Like I am a firm believer of that sense of like, the more that we do something, the more proof that we build. And therefore the more that we feel that we are that person. Right. And, and that for me is like, it's not to say that every day I have to do, you know, these 20 things, like I have to take everything off my to-do list. It's like, what are the core things that I need to do for this day to be a good day? Or what are the core things that would make this week a successful week? And therefore, if you do those things, that builds a sense of like, okay, I can give myself the credit that I am hardworking, successful, driven person. And if I don't, you have to say, okay, is that because you set yourself too high of a bar? Or really, is it because you just didn't work hard enough? And I think for most people, it's that they just didn't show up and work hard enough. And like an example of that for me is often it's like, I know myself that I have a certain capacity to work, right? I have a certain capacity to, to, to work, put my head down and get things done. But on certain days, I don't do very much work. On certain days, as you said, like I also work from home an awful lot. I don't have a, a team directly around me. That my, my teams are generally remote. And therefore, some days when I have stuff to do, I will do anything else but those things. Like I'll sit there, I'll scroll Instagram, I'll find a reason to go and take a longer lunch. I'll go out for a walk. I'll you know, just do like meaningless things that don't add any value to my day. And if anything, they're just taking away from the fact that like this, this thought is building up of like, well, just do the fucking thing you need to do. Like, for example, even this morning there, like I had a, had a contract that I needed to send to a client where I'm boarding a new, new client to the agency. Um, and I was almost like I just hadn't gone around to it. I'd done a few other little tasks this morning, got a few things done. And I was like, I've got this call with Steve in an hour. I was like, hey, just get, just do the contract. Like, let's get it done. And it's like, it's, you know, we already have a template there. It's not like a super hard thing to do. It's actually just updating a few bits of information and getting it ready to send to the client. Um, and that, I literally was like, okay, just threw my phone in the drawer for an hour, cracked into it, got it done. And now it's all ready to send off to the client. Um, and I think just so often like that, it's, it's, it's finding that sense of like, okay, what needs to be done? Just get it done. And then you can go for the walk. Then you can go and scroll social media. Then you can go and watch a YouTube video. But don't do that thing until you've done the thing you need to do. Because that's when, for me personally, that, that negative self-talk comes in. It's when, I'm, when I know there's something that needs done, but I'm not actioning it. And I'm procrastinating instead. And it's building this negative loop of like, you're a lazy piece of shit. Like, fucking pull your, pull your socks up and get on with it. Yeah. Um, and, but the more it happens, the more you're like, nah, fuck it, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to sit here in this sense of like, you know. But yeah, I was thinking about my day today. And there was just like a few things I needed to get done. And I was sitting there and I knew I needed some to, to get them done. But I just, it was one of those times where it's just like, I wasn't feeling that didn't have that motivation. Like, is there anything you do at that point, at the very micro, like tactical level to try and kick yourself into a bit of action? Not in particular, to be honest. Like the thing that I actually think is very important is this conversation. And what I mean by that is, I know you're a very high achievement dude. Like you've had a lot of success in your career. You've worked in very senior positions and you go through these things, obviously on a frequent basis. I go through these things on a very frequent basis. Most people that I speak to in most capacities of work, whether they're on their own business or they work for a big company, that people, pretty much everybody goes through this sense of not having the energy or motivation to do the thing that's in front of them at that time. And I think it's very important to normalize that everyone goes through this 
because I know myself, I've sat at a desk in a high achieving organization and sat around and thought everyone else in here is working so hard right now. And I just can't bring myself to send that fucking email. When in reality, 80% of the people around me are probably all doing the exact same thing, thinking like, oh God, I've got to get back to that client pitch and send them that proposal. I really don't want to fucking do it either. But nobody speaks about it because we're all afraid that if we talk about it, we're going to come across as like we don't have a strong work ethic, we don't work hard enough, and we're somehow a failure or we're going to get sacked or we're going to get a bad rating. Yeah. Whatever is in your own business, obviously there's no one to, to take those repercussions against you, but you also just sit in this internal monologue of like, I don't work very hard. Every other business owner must be super driven and super disciplined and work way harder than me, and therefore I'm, I'm not a right person to do this. Maybe I'm, going to, you know, I'm not able to, to achieve these things. So I, I honestly think it's very important to acknowledge how normal it is to have that sense of like, I don't want to do what's in front of me. Um, yeah. But again, like I, the, the, the one thing that does resonate is the guy I used to work with, uh, Tom Gillespie in Google, and he used to have this analogy of eat the frog as a sense of like, just do the, the hardest task first. So like the first thing in the morning, if there's like one or two things that you know are going to be a bit of a pain that you're going to have to think about, like, oh, I, I know it's going to be on my mind all day until I get it done. Just do it first. Like literally just jump into it and say, okay, like, let's just, let's go. Most things don't take more than 30, 40 minutes in the reality in, in, in a workplace. Of course, you can do some large reports that take a couple of days, but in general, most tasks are kind of 30, 30 to 40 minutes. Um, and therefore, it's like, just try and allocate that time to get that one thing done. Because after that one thing is off your mind, you all of a sudden feel like, ah, okay, I'm doing pretty good today. I've got my major task done. And then you'll probably start to take off a few other things as well because you've built that bit of momentum. Whereas if you push that to the end of the day or the next day, your whole day is just spent ruminating on it and thinking about it and then feeling like more of a failure because you haven't done it yet. So if there is a strategy, I would say it's that. But again, I would say it's like, it's it's such a normal thing to comprehend. And I think it's very important to speak about it. I think it's a great point about um, normalizing it. I, um, I'm thinking about like when I was at McKinsey, right? And everybody always talks about how hard you work when you're at McKinsey and you're doing 70, 80 hour weeks. And I had days I didn't do that much for sure. And I was sitting in the office till like six because that was, I thought like the absolute minimum that I would have to stay because everybody else was going on about how they were up till two and three o'clock the night before. And then I go back to my hotel and like watch Netflix in, in the evening. There's no way I was going to tell anybody that, like, hey, do you know what? I actually yeah. had a pretty cruisy day today um, when everyone else has gone on about how hard they worked. I think as well, like, it'd probably be useful if we could kind of shadow each other maybe for a little bit and the people who we think are, you know, productive beasts for like 10 or 12 hours a day and see actually what goes on in their lives. It's like, probably doesn't really look like that. And that's fine. You can still you can still do all the things and achieve all those things without it. Yeah. Um, but I think the funny thing is, if you, what, if you were yeah. to shadow somebody, they would probably be hyperproductive for those few days. Uh, yeah, they would feel like, oh, true. I've got to show this person out. Um, yeah, yeah, that's no, very true. Um, over the last like few years, uh, certainly since moving to Australia, I've like also reduced like the amount of alcohol that that I drink. I'm probably actually ticked back up a bit in the last like six months or so, and um, which has been interesting. But um, and in general, it's good for me but one area i struggle with is in the like celebration side of things right like i love getting to a friday or a saturday and just having a little point where i can go fuck yeah end the week done gonna go have a few beers i don't need to get smashed but like i love that when whenever i'm not drinking i really miss 
that little bit of a symbol of celebration or recognition of a job well done or something like that. Um, and it's also a bit of a release, right? And so that's that's one thing I find that when I'm not drinking at all, I I struggle to find somewhere where I get that release and, and just that enjoyment from, right? Um, do you, what's your experience been with that? And have you ever found something that kind of gives you that same sense or is that something that you even that that, that exists for you it's definitely something that exists yeah I, I can resonate with that point a lot i think i'm still figuring out like so to give a bit of context on my like yeah i guess alcohol and and, and not drink as much anymore it's like about about a year and a half ago i think i did like three months during i think it was last summer actually i think last summer i did three months not drinking and that was the longest stint I think I've ever done since probably I was 15 or something like that. Um, and I didn't find it super challenging, but I did find it very socially isolating because, again, my natural way to celebrate, to socialize was to go for a couple of drinks. And before coming out to Bali, I had been, hadn't been drinking that much, but when I got here, I kind of fell into that same routine. of like, okay, I'm in a new place. I want to meet people, want to get out and about, want to be social. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I was kind of out two nights a week again, like, you know, Friday, Saturday or Thursday, Friday, whatever it might be. And I kind of found myself slipping into similar drinking habits that I used to kind of be in when I was 24, 25 and kind of working in Dublin. And I quickly kind of realized like it was making me feel pretty bad. Like I was, the hangovers were very extensive and that kind of low mood or that kind of negative internal voice was much, much louder um, when I was drinking more. And I was like, okay, clearly there's some correlation here between these two things. And I think it was also a combination of where I was at in my life. Like I just left my job. I hadn't really fully figured out what I was going to do next or, or what that next step looked like. And therefore that coupled with then going on boozy weekends and just kind of playing into that sense of like, you know, I'm just kind of blowing my life away here. It's like I'm 28 years of age. I'm just like pissing it away, getting getting wasted every weekend. No real direction or focus to work on right now. And I just was found myself in a pretty bad place. Whenever I stopped drinking that three months, Although there was a lot of challenges that came around, kind of I definitely pulled back socially. I had a very like progressive three months in lots of other ways. Like my, I got fitter than I, than I'd been in a long time. I that was when I first started doing the freelancing business, pretty much you know around that time. And I, I kind of ramped up my first two or three clients, started making pretty consistent income. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm achieving things here for myself that I built by myself with no kind of support or no backing. Um, and I would contribute a large portion of that down to having the headspace from not drinking at the weekends and being able to focus and work harder and kind of put my head down and get those things done. But what I did find was after the kind of three month period, it was very hard for me to extend it because I got to a point where the, the benefits of those things were no longer enough for the sacrifices that I was making on the social side. I was feeling very socially withdrawn, very socially isolated and really struggling to connect with people. And the way that I knew how to connect with people was just to go back having a few drinks again. And I really me- I remember just rationalizing it as like, oh, well, look, like pretty much everybody drinks anyway. Like I don't have to get wasted, but I, you know, let's just go and have a couple of drinks on a Friday and let's, you know, get, be more social again. And I remember doing that again for a couple of months and pretty much fell into similar drinking behaviors, where it's like not getting wasted, not drinking an awful lot, but, you know, having a couple of drinks on a Friday, you know, here and there. Um, I kind of found myself, I've had this long and for long, it's like, like, you know, what about taking a longer break, taking a longer stint, like to see what happens and kind of trying to lean through that uncomfortable period, right? Because I think it's quite easy, maybe not easy, but it's, it's, it's achievable to do like one, two, three months, right? Because in that first month, it's just like, 
you know, it's, it's actually really nice to get away from all the social for a month sometimes. Like often our weekends and our schedules are packed with what other people want us to do. A month away is just like, oh, wow, headspace, like freedom, clarity. You know, you're training better. You have a bit more to think about in terms of where you want to go with your with your life or your career. Um, but two and three months starts to be a little bit harder because it's like, oh, I, I, I do need a social life. Like that's actually quite important for me. Um, and if you haven't replaced it, it starts to be like, okay, where do I find that? How, how, do, how do I find an avenue to still feel connected, still meet people I want to be around, um, but not compromise on my values and, and what I find important, which is I don't want to drink because it's not very good for my mental health. Um, and I would say right now, I think it's also part of that reason as to why I've been in a little bit of a lower place the last two months. It's like I'm going through a lot of like, in some senses, pain, like in this process of change. Like it's not a comfortable thing to go through where it's like there's a sense of like I feel like I'm losing connection to certain people and I find it harder to connect with people that I used to be friends with because that was one thing that we used to share in common and that was one way that we used to connect and used to kind of have fun together. Um and therefore, there's a real sense of a void that comes with that as to like, do I need to completely rebuild my social circle from scratch? Like meet new people who also don't drink and just have friends who are fully sober? Like, I don't think that's the avenue. But it's more so of like, how do I do things that I want to do with the people that I want to be around without feeling the need to drink? And for me, the things that I try and do is like trying to go out and like play paddle tennis. I started playing this like paddle tennis last, last couple of years. It's just a fun activity. You know, you go out for an hour or two, you play a couple of games, generally friendly, but also a bit competitive. So you kind of just, it takes you out of your own head. It's a social thing. And I think, I think for guys in particular, we generally need an activity. It's very hard, I think, for guys to go as a group and just kind of, you know, sit down and watch Sunset, for example, or, you know, go and just share a lunch together. It's like, we feel like we need to do something. Like we need to be physically active. And again, that's also part of just like male psychology. Like we, we bond through solving problems or through challenges together. So like competitive sports or these things. Are very good for male bonding um so that's been one is like playing playing paddle another one i play like spike ball so again i'll try and get people together to go to the beach at the weekend so uh, you know on a saturday or sunday morning after after the gym um i'll try and get a group of six or eight people we'll go to the beach for the day we'll play spike ball we'll get a bit of sun and again if, if they're going out in the evening i don't mind missing out because i know i've already got to spend time with them during the day whereas if i don't do any of those things and I don't see anyone during the week and go and play mm. sports with them or train with friends or go and play uh, spike ball at the beach. All of a sudden, it's like I've just had no social interaction during that week. And now my friends are going out to a party on Friday and I don't really want to go. So therefore, it's like I either compromise my own values by going to some party where I'll feel a bit uncomfortable. I don't really want to be there um, or I'll sit at home by myself on a Friday night, which that that's not a very nice thing to do too frequently. Like I think it's fine to do every other week and throw on Netflix or whatever. But doing that every Friday and sitting at home by yourself for like two months on a Friday, like this is not really how I want to be spending my life. No. Um, so no. it's, it's, it's a balance, man. Like I, I definitely don't have it figured out. It's, it's been probably the biggest challenge of trying to move away from alcohol. And the other thing that I find interesting, like is people often like they kind of, they either feel sorry for you or they assume that you have a problem. I'm just like, hey, I, I'm, I'm very happily not out drinking. You know, I've never had a, an alcohol problem. It's like, you know, I don't need your self-pity. I don't need your like worry, concern of like, oh, are you, are you doing okay? It's like, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Uh, I just prefer not to not to get wasted the weekends. I don't really want to be hungover. I don't want to have the low moods that come with it for me. Um, but yeah, it's, again, I, I'm also, the other thing I'd say that I'm trying, that I've learned about myself is that I definitely use alcohol as a way to feel more comfortable in social situations. And there's definitely a level of probably social anxiety that I never really was aware of. I always felt like I was relatively social. I'm not super extroverted, but I generally feel pretty comfortable around people. 
And only since I've stopped drinking, I've realized how much of that was actually false confidence driven by alcohol. Um, and that's a very interesting thing to come to terms with because like, Ooh, okay, I've got some social skills I need to work on here. And I've also got to be more comfortable in myself and, and also learn the situations you want to go into. Again, I, I don't think we should avoid those situations. I don't think that we should stop going into group environments or stop being around people. But you then need to realize like, oh, I need to learn that skill. I need to become better in my ability to socialize, communicate without the, uh, I guess, the addition of alcohol to help me get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a tough, well, I actually really like that approach. It's a very logical approach, right? Which is just kind of saying, well, okay, um, if I'm not going to drink alcohol, but I still want to be social. And I was previously using alcohol as this kind of like social lubricant. Um, what can I do instead? It's like, okay, well, I need this new skill and I, I, I need to go and build that. And like any skill, I'm going to have to practice it and like figure it out. But like, I can build it, right? Like, um, I think that's a cool approach to it. Um, one other thing we were talking about before we started recording was actually a bit more on like the career side of things, right? Um, and specifically around like, startups early stage startups what it looks like to join them i know you've kind of got a, a couple of questions or topics that you want to maybe cover Do, will we talk about that for a while yeah i was really keen like i know obviously the, the whole topic of your podcast is around people's paths and where they want to go with their life and with their career and i think it's something really interesting because for me i kind of went like big corporate big tech and then i've kind of entered into this entrepreneurial space and I kind of find there's so many different avenues, but we generally tend to validate the choices that we make ourselves because like, oh, well, I'm doing this. So therefore it's the right thing for me to be doing it this time. And I think it's really interesting to get your perspective because you took a bit of a different trajectory. And I guess a lot of people, a lot of people want to make a lot of money at the end of the day. People are like, how do, how do I yeah. make good money, build financial security? And there's, there's obviously four or five different avenues in getting there. If people have their own business, they often think running your own business is the only way to, to make serious money. Some people are senior directors in large companies and they're actually making very, very big salaries and have very you know, secure financial situations. Other people take the risky step of going to a smaller startup with the hope that that will pay off in the future because you get a large equity stake. And if they sell or the IPO, you end up making a fat chunk and you can pretty much retire you know, at a young age. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that journey and also your journey through those early stage startups and how that looks in terms of getting equity and did you get some big payouts from it or, you know, is it very much the skill base that you get to learn or yeah, what's your takes on that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And actually I think it's something that a lot of people don't talk about. I think it's a very kind of opaque um, section or industry, which but is, has a massive impact in terms of like how you make decisions. So um, for me, so I've been involved in two startups, right? Uh, the first one I was the first one was let's get checked. I was given equity. I left before any of it vested, right? So that's the first thing. So I got nothing out of that. It probably would be worth a decent amount now. I haven't done the maths on it, but like that company's worth over a billion dollars. If I invested out my stake, I don't know, like probably high six figures or seven figures worth. Like if I'd stayed for the four or five years for it to invest, I don't know. I can't remember the exact number of shares that I had, but like that's a really good outcome. Yeah right yeah. um at wayflyer i was given a good amount of options i joined super early so i was like first maybe 10 or 11 people so you get a good chunk of options when you join that early um and that worked out really well for me as well and the reason why was because when we went through our series a and series b rounds 
what I was able to do was sell what's called secondaries. So a lot of the time you're waiting around for an IPO or an acquisition for your options to be worth anything. But at each of those points, we actually sold shares. We, we kind of raised new investment, but then also you get to sell secondary shares, which means that me as an employee had a certain amount of options. I was able to turn them into shares and sell them to new investors as well. So like personally, it worked out really, really well for me. I would say that it's not, it's a good bet, right? But it's not a very good, it's not guaranteed at all. It's a very low probability outcome. I think I was particularly lucky. Like if you look at the stats and from how many startups like reach even the billion dollar valuation, it's very, very low. So it's a low probability, but like high reward bet if you make it. Um, this is why like, if you think about how the VC industry works, they invest in these startups with their money, but they spread it across 30, 40, 50 investments. The problem is as an individual, you can't do that. You're putting all your eggs in one basket. So from a purely financial perspective, I think the way I always looked at it was I'm going to assume all my equities were at zero. And if ever any of it turns into something, great. But I always made sure that like my salary and the other parts of my compensation were enough that if all of that went to zero, I was still, I was still okay. So yeah, I, I, from a financial perspective, that's how I looked at it. I guess it's almost like a sentence, like it's very high risk. So as you said there, it's a really good way of explaining it. It's like, it's like putting all of your money, if you were to invest your own money into one pretty high risk startup stock, because you're choosing to work exactly. in that one company. So therefore all of your equity is, is held up within that one. Do you want me asking like, what was your rationale behind choosing to sell those secondary shares as opposed to holding the hope of an even higher future valuation? Um, good question. Couple of things. Um, I wanted the cash now. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, so yeah. like that, that was definitely an element of it. I was like, hey, cash in my pocket now sounds pretty good to me. Um, the second thing was that I thought that the valuation of the company at the time was actually pretty good for where you know, I thought it would, it might be a long time before we were meaningfully further along in terms of valuation. So I thought it was a good deal, what I was getting for it. Um, and then the third thing was, is that I didn't sell them all. So I was able to, so the way I thought about it was like, hey, I'll sell this chunk, turn that into cash now. And that's good, right? That's great. Like that's a, a really meaningful amount of money for me. But then I'm also leaving this bet in there. So if it really goes gangbusters in the future, I've got enough in there that I can still, um, you know, make money off it. That was basically it. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes, like instead of you put a big bet in and it pays off, you don't leave the whole bet in and double down. You take out, you know, your stake and, and take your win, and then leave a small bit in there for the for the ride to see how much you you might get if it does go, you know, the extreme heights. Exactly. But I think like the mistake, one of the mistakes I made was we had so the first round, I think the Series A. I had a chance to sell and I sold a chunk at that, right? Um, and then like 12 months later, maybe even less than 12 months later, we did Series B. And if I hadn't sold my Series A stake at the Series A and sold them at the Series B, I think I would have got four or five times as much money for it. So like that was pretty costly for the sake of 12 months, yeah, yeah. right? Obviously hindsight and all that, but like, yeah. <laughs> then you can say the same on the second one. If you had it then... I guess took that lesson as, as the other way around and said, ah, actually last time I sold 
if I had a held, it would have went on to more. And you're like, actually, I'm not going to sell on this second round and hold it again. All of a sudden, then you're stuck in a position where maybe you don't get a chance to do that again because they might not wait for a couple of years. You know, and then, yeah. And also, I think that's really, really interesting. I'd love to just get your perspective on like what advice you would have for people considering that step to early stage startup. I know a few friends of mine went from Google into early stage startups, and I'd love to kind of think at the time a lot of people were a bit like, oh, what are you doing? It's a really risky move to make. Um, I think some of them have paid off very well, to be honest, similar to yourself. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of what advice you'd give someone maybe in a big company considering taking a step into a startup and maybe what to expect. Yeah, it's a great po- it's a great question. Like I think, um, so look, there's big financial reward there, but it's like a high risk thing. So the first thing I would say is like, you know, don't put too much value. Uh, don't count any of the value that you're getting from an equity perspective. If it comes off, fantastic, you've won the lottery. If not, you know, make sure that you're still getting enough from a compensation perspective that's worth your while. The second thing is to realize that there are a lot of benefits um, from a career perspective if you get in and do well. So if you join a startup early and you're a good worker, you'll advance and progress and be given way more responsibilities way faster than you would at a larger company. And so that's another benefit that not a lot of people talk about. What I would say, though, is like pick your really try and pick your startup well. Like not all startups are the same. There's some really good ones where the chance of it doing well is way higher than another one, which is really bad. And so what I would look for specifically, like some good signals are the quality of the founders matters massively. And I think, sure, you can do reference checks. You can just look at their profile, their background. Is this their first gig or not? Um, But also then look at, like spend time with them especially if you're going to be working very closely, if it's very early days, spend a lot of time with the founders of the company. You'll get a sense for whether they're serious operators or not. Um, and then another one is like, look at the quality of the investors. If a company has really good investors on their cap table, it's likely that they see something that makes them really likely um, to be successful. So I would look at those things. First, one thing as well I would look at with the founders is it's way nicer to work with a startup where it's their second or third time round as founders. And sometimes founders on their first gig can be really like uh, jittery. And so that creates a lot of like stress in the company. Um, Whereas, and I've worked with one company where it's actually like quite a good founder, but it definitely was a bit more of like a stressful environment. Whereas then the second business I worked with, it was like his third or fourth startup. And so he'd been there, done that. And so he didn't really get stressed out. And then that kind of passed its way on down through the company, right? Where it just feels like a much more chill vibe. Everybody works super hard, but it's more chill. Last thing I'd say for anybody who's at a big company who's thinking about a startup is only do it if you're prepared to live and die by your own performance. So there's a lot less hiding in a startup. Now, if you're at a big company and you think, actually, I've got a lot of potential, I want to work hard and I want to get recognized for that startup is great because you can go in there you can smash it and you'll make a big impact people will see that and you'll get more responsibility but like if you go in and you try and cruise you'll be found out like fairly quickly um and you won't be around for long because startups can't afford to really hang on to people who aren't performing so um yeah they there'd be some of my thoughts on you know how, how somebody could think about whether or not to join a startup also the last thing stage right it's, like, there's a very big difference between like a company that is three people and a company that's 300 people. They both get called startups and you can basically just think of them on like a risk curve. And the further, the older they are, the further along 
they are on that risk curve, which means that they're less risky, but then there's also less upside, right? And it's just pretty linear. Where do you think the sweet spot is? Oh, good question. I think sweet spot is like post seed or series A um, because if you can go into a company that already has product market fit, which is usually defined by whether they've raised that seed or series A, that takes a lot of the risk out, but you still have a lot of the upside yet. So they can still be quite small, right? Um, But they've de-risked a major part of startups and how they fail, which is that like their product never lands with the customer. Um, I think that's a really nice point. You can get in early and you can still grow with it, right? Like that company can go from 10 to 50 to 100 people very, very quickly. And you can expand with that. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Man. I've never really heard anyone's perspective on that extent. The point that you made around the like kind of personality that suits a startup and that sense of like, you need to be willing to work very hard and push yourself and be very willing to be judged based on your performance. Because I do think, I think big companies struggle to retain their top talent for that very reason, because top talent in big organizations gets held back and they can't progress quick enough. And therefore, they want to venture to a smaller company where they have more responsibility and can progress quicker. So unfortunately, as a result of that, a lot of people who stay in larger companies for a longer period of time end up being the ones who maybe aren't as highly driven in that capacity and therefore maybe not the most productive output on those teams who are more mature as they mature. And then very hard for companies to get rid of, I guess, disgruntled, unmotivated unproductive employees who are staying because they know it's going to be very hard to fire them. And that, I guess, is the problem. As a startup gets to a certain size and they become too big, that natural sense of bureaucracy starts to come in and the output per individual significantly decreases. Yeah, I think that's very true. And like most startups will try and fight that tooth and nail for as long as they can, but inevitably it happens. I think the interesting perspective is from, if you look at an individual who is very talented and very driven and they're at a large organization um, they can really get uh, destroyed is, is, is probably a bit too harsh but I've seen people who go into these organizations are very very passionate very very talented and over time they get worn down because like their rewards aren't and um, they're not rewarded because of their work they find it very political so they can't actually progress as quick as they would like to and the best thing that can happen for that person is that they get out and they get into an environment where they are rewarded for what they're able to do but i've seen the other side of it which i think is much sadder whereas essentially they just give up and they sit in the organization and they start they turn into those disgruntled employees i think a lot of times if you would look at those less motivated disgruntled employees they didn't start off like that they started off like they're really, really motivated and talented people and they just got wore down and they said, you know what, I give up. It's just much easier if I just play the game and just kind of sit around here and take my paycheck and go home. Yeah, that's a very good point, man. And I would tend to agree with you 100%. It's not people who are not, they don't have a high capacity for achievement or work ethic. It's that they've just became disgruntled and therefore they their work capacity decreases as a result. And that's probably due to poor management in terms of not I guess, giving those people an opportunity to flourish. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, we've got one more topic maybe that we can cover off before we wrap up. Do you have time for maybe a couple more minutes? Uh, yeah, well. no, it should be good, yeah. Um, so the last one was, it, it was kind of an interesting, it was a message that you sent me last week or the week before, which was um, talking about some of the parallels that are happening in our society around um, 
Well, maybe I'll let, I'll let you, you'll explain it better than I, uh, than I will. Assuming you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah the, point, the point around mental health that we were chatting about uh, the other day when we were messaging each other, I think, I guess it's, it's a combination of a personal reflection and also kind of a bit of a research back perspective on trends within society around kind of this like positivity movement and then also the realities of the challenges that people are suffering with in terms of mental health and depression. So on one side of society, you have people who are saying, you know, don't associate with negative people, remove all toxic or negative people from your life, disassociate from anyone who has negative or bad energy. And in some senses, that's a very fair thing to say, right? Because people don't want to be surrounded by negative people who are bringing them down, who are, you know, bringing the general mood or energy down. The unfortunate consequence for people who suffer with depression is as a result of that, you very often become more pessimistic and more negative in your viewpoints as a you know, condition of that disorder that you're dealing with. So, you know, uh, people who are, who are suffering with depression are often very pessimistic, often lower in moods, and therefore they can be more negative about, you know, the future poss- possibilities that they might have or the general society at large. And my question would kind of be, like, does this lead to people abandoning them in their very time of need? So people who are suffering the most and who are at their very lowest point and really need help and really need support and guidance from their friends, family, from people around them, and that's the very point when people are being like, ah, oh, they're too negative. I don't want to be around them. And it's like, how dangerous potentially could that be for society when we see a very aggressively growing rate of suicide among young men in particular across most Western uh, developed societies and trying to understand, like, what's the consequences of, I guess, that lack of responsibility for everyone in society at large and kind of be like, oh, well, I, I, I just want to be around happy, positive people who are, you know, go-getters. Therefore, they're not my problem. It's nothing to do with me. Let them go and deal with their own shit on, the, on, on their own. Um, but I think this, there's something, I've looked at some research on this, and it's like that humans have a profound need to connect uh, with others and gain acceptance within social groups. And that essentially is like belonging. And there's a study from DC and Ryan in 2000 that kind of verifies that point. Um, and there's another sense that then people suffer with relationships, uh, with relationships deteriorating and social bonds are severed, although feeling disconnected from others and experiencing a lack of belonging uh, bothers everyone. Depressed people may be particularly sensitive to these painful social encounters. That pretty much means that people who suffer from depression are more prone to feeling the negative sides of being rejected from a social group or social uh, setting. So therefore, it would kind of conclude that people yeah. pushing people away in that way is actually furthering and increasing the severity of, of, of the problem that is occurring within society. Um, and again, I don't have a solution but i think it's a very interesting thing to speak about because it's just essentially looking at like even though depression and mental health is being spoken about in society more than it probably ever has and there's a lot more awareness about what depression is and how people suffer from it are people in society actually supporting those people effectively and giving them the platform to deal with their issues and try and progress and live a more healthy and fulfilled life or are they actually pushing them away from them saying oh well that's your problem to deal with you know, fair enough, I'll, put, I'll post a quote about, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month on Instagram, but I won't actually support my friends who are dealing with depression in their day-to-day lives. I think that's, unfortunately, a reality of, of some of the environment that we live in. I think you've hit on something here. Like, I think it's really true. Um, and I think that that initial message, right, which is, like, only surround yourself with positive people, it probably got, like, morphed into it probably started from somewhere quite good but now when you point it out like this it probably morphed into something that very different right so 
I think maybe an adaptation of that message is like, hey, you know, if there's toxic people in your life, right, um, not just somebody who, you know, isn't happy-go-lucky all the time, but like somebody who is like a really bad negative influence on your life, it's like, yeah, maybe you should think about if you want to keep them around. But it's unrealistic to to expect or to think that everybody in your life is also going to be in this wonderful mood all the time who wants to do absolutely everything. And what I actually found is that like that kind of messaging is in pursuit of a very like hedonic type of lifestyle where it's very much like driven by, I want to be in the perfect environment. I want to you know, only feel good things all of the time. Um, and it's, it's very like a joy driven, a pursuit of of joy in this kind of heightened state. Whereas the more and more I kind of learn about things like this type of thing is that as humans, we get a lot of meaning and satisfaction from caring for others and doing something purposeful. And if you have a friend who's suffering from depression, it's not going to be, it may not be, you know, enjoyable to go and hang out with them if they're in a really bad place. Like that's just the reality of it. Yeah. But I guarantee you that you'll feel so much better for us. And they will too. And I think like, in general, like shifting more towards, let's just not do things that are pleasurable all the time, but let's do things that we find meaning in is probably a bit of a better message for this. But I agree with you that there's probably a lot of people out there who are maybe cutting people out of their lives because like, oh, I don't like... I don't like being around that person. They seem to always be a bit low. They're not really up for doing much. Whereas like, really, that's when that person needs you in their life the most. Yeah, no, I think it's a very good way of putting it. And I think it's, yeah, as you said, like we generally connect through shared suffering more so than shared happiness. And what generally like the people that you connect the most with are the people who've gone through similar challenging experiences to you. I think that's just a very natural human instinct that we're drawn towards people who can relate to or understand challenges that we've had to go through because that's really what what draws us closer as humans um yeah i I think it's a a very complex topic i think because the other flip side challenge is if that message is being portrayed so heavily within media people who then don't feel like they're the most positive or they're going through a bit of a negative period or a depressive period in their life they then that negative voice can increase even further to say oh look no one wants to be around me because i'm negative and therefore i'll just completely isolate myself and withdraw socially and that's the worst thing possible that someone can do when they're in that position because they need more than ever social connection, interaction, support, guidance to kind of try and pull themselves into a better position. And again, it's not to say that people should stay in a low negative uh, place forever. It's to say that whenever they are in that place, that we should support them and try and help them, you know, as much as possible to progress beyond it into a more fulfilled, happy, stable place, which often results in having a very stable community of people around you who are there to support you. Like the more and more I think about this type of thing, it's like the more and more I realize that what actually matters for us is, is having a community of people around us that care about us, that we care about them. We do things for each other, even when it's not easy, um, when it's, you know, when it's hard, like for me, that just seems like a life that I want to live. Right. Whereas like if somebody in my community is feeling down, I can go and help them because, not even because it's going to be reciprocal, but how nice would it be that if in a year's time I'm going through a shit place and suddenly my friends are knocking on my door going, hey, 
like I know you're in a shit place, but come on, do you want to go out? We'll go to the beach, we go for a surf, we go do something. Like when you really need them, that they're going to be there for you. Like that sounds, that sounds like a much nicer place than everybody, than somebody going, geez, I don't want to talk to that lad this week. You know, I'll talk to him next week when he's feeling a bit better, but uh, I'm not going to talk to him this week. <laughs> he's going to bring me down. Yeah, I think it's a um, great quite way of putting them in. Ogie, mate, thank you so much for this. Um, I really enjoyed this. I've always enjoyed these conversations, but uh, yeah, you bring some good topics. It was nice to kind of dive a bit deeper into, I know the last time we kind of focused a lot about like your story, which was super interesting, but it was like also kind of good to explore some other topics that you've been thinking about and that you're interested in. And, you know, you can ask me some questions as well, which I appreciate. So uh, yeah, thanks a million. I know, I really enjoyed it too. Cheers for having me on again. No problem.